0: Well, good morning, everyone. How are we all doing today? All right. Warm enough in here for you? A little chilly today. Uh, This week, we're going to be back in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 25 today, and we're calling this message, Walls Come Tumbling Down. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you uh, for this beautiful Sunday. We thank you for a place to worship. We thank you for this body of people who come faithfully, to worship you, Lord, but mostly we thank you for you, for your son, for your grace. Uh, Lord, it's just amazing how we just sung about it, the grace that, that saves our souls uh, because Jesus died on the cross for us, Lord. And now may your word uh, be spoken true and uh, may it be received. Bring the Holy Spirit to do the work, Lord, so that uh, we hear it, uh, understand it, and obey it, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, when uh, World War II ended Uh, Germany, of course, was defeated, and uh, Germany was divided between uh, the Soviet Union, which took the eastern half of Germany, and the Allies occupied the western uh, part of Germany. And Berlin, even though it was in the eastern side of Germany, uh, they divided that city also uh, so that the Soviets occupied the east side and the Allies occupied the west side. Uh, And of course, that brought tension because uh, the Soviets certainly didn't want a capitalist city in their half of Germany, and so uh, that was a big problem. And then another problem was that people were uh, leaving the eastern half to go over to the western half, and and the Soviets didn't like their people leaving for the western part of Germany and becoming capitalists. So the result of all that was the Berlin Wall. Uh, This wall was constructed in about 1961 over a period of time, and it divided the city of Berlin right in half uh, along uh, a line, and it was about 12 feet of reinforced concrete by four feet wide and topped with, in in some places, this plastic uh, bar that you can see across the top that made it hard to get over. In other places, it was uh, topped with barbed wire, and there were armed guards at the Berlin Wall to make sure that people didn't try to escape. They were ordered to kill anyone who tried to get over this wall. And so when the wall was built, families were divided. There were some on the east side, there were some on the west side, and this wall stood for decades and they didn't see each other literally uh, for decades. And finally, when the wall was torn down uh, in 1989, there was great joy in Berlin because families uh, were reunited together and the country was reunified. And our passage today is like that. Uh, It's about walls being torn down, but these are spiritual walls. Uh, They're not physical walls. They're spiritual walls that uh, existed because of hate and because of prejudice. Uh, And God was able to tear them down, even though they existed for a thousand years between Samaritans and between uh, the Jews. And they were broken by the grace of God and the ministry of Jesus and by the evangelism of Philip and his ministry. So we'll start by reading about the ministry of Philip in verses four through eight. Uh, Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Well, following Stephen's murder, there was great persecution in the city, and we saw last week that the people uh, were scattered all over the place outside of Jerusalem. And this, of course, is the beginning of the gospel, leaving the confines of Jerusalem and going out to the greater world, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. And and God was going to use Hellenistic believers. These are the Greek believers who uh, were Jews, but they were not born in Israel. And and these were the guys who were going to do the work of evangelism uh, outside Of the confines of Jerusalem. And Stephen was one of the seven who was chosen to minister to the Hellenistic widows, but then he was martyred for his faith. But now here's Philip, another one of the seven who was chosen uh, to, to minister to the Hellenistic widows. And he escapes Jerusalem before he can be killed, but he doesn't go into hiding. He goes down to Samaria. And in Samaria, that is where he is going to do his Evangelistic work. And I just want to make sure that we understand that this is a different person than Philip the Apostle. Uh, This is Philip the Evangelist. This is a different person. So, this Philip, he goes down to Samaria. And Samaria is north of Jerusalem geographically, but whenever we talk about coming coming out of Jerusalem, we're always going down from Jerusalem because of the altitude of Jerusalem. It doesn't matter which direction you're going, you're always going down from Jerusalem. Uh, And so, Samaritans were hated by Jews and vice versa. And this all began a thousand years earlier. You'll remember that when Solomon died, the kingdom was divided into the 10 northern tribes of Israel and then the two southern tribes uh, of Judah. And so you had that division. And then in 722 BC, uh, the Assyrians exiled the uh, 10 northern tribes and they took these Jews from the 10 northern tribes back up to Assyria. And there, they intermarried uh, with the Jews and they had children uh, with the Jews. And so now you have people who are uh, half Gentile and half Jewish. Uh, and so when the, when the uh, southern two tribes were exiled to Babylon in 586 BC, Uh, they did not intermarry with the Babylonians and they did not have children with the Babylonians. And so these Jews from the two Southern tribes felt superiority over the Jews from the 10 Northern tribes because they had maintained their religious and racial and ethnic purity, whereas the 10 Northern tribes did not. So uh, that was a great source of hatred and prejudice among them. And then to to add to it, um, in the fourth century BC, Uh, The Samaritans, uh, as they came to be known, they set up a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, and that's a temple that was going to be worshipped at uh, in contradiction to the temple in Jerusalem, and and that was uh, really the last straw uh, for the Jews in Israel. And not only did they do that, but the the Samaritans they jettisoned the entire Old Testament except for the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. So they're different now theologically, uh, ethnically, uh, religiously, uh, and from a purity standpoint. And so there's this great hatred that exists between these two. And and in fact, the hatred was so great that if a Jew from Jerusalem was going to proceed up to Galilee, uh, geographically, the best way to do this is to walk directly through Samaria. You can see it on this map. Uh, You would walk from from, uh, Jerusalem down here and straight through Samaria up to Galilee. But... uh, Most Jews would not do that. Rather than walk through Samaria, they would go around Samaria taking this coastal route or they would cross the Jordan River and go up this way just to avoid going through Samaria. So great was the hatred. And so one of the things that's so shocking about John chapter four is that Jesus, it says he had to go through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to go through Samaria. He had to go through because he had an appointment with a Samaritan, first of all, which was unthinkable. And then a Samaritan woman uh, who had five husbands and was living with one who was not her husband, uh, this was absolutely revolutionary because of how uh, the, the, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Uh, John himself, in fact mentions the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, and these are the reasons why, because Samaritans are uh, viewed or viewed as heretics and hybrids and half-breeds, and, and so there's this great prejudice that's going on. but Jesus's work in Samaria set the stage for Philip's work. Uh, Jesus said to the apostles while he was still in Samaria, you'll remember, uh, he said, look, the fields are white for harvest. Pray that the Lord will send workers out into his field. He said that while he was in Samaria, while looking over Samaria, and Philip is the answer to Jesus's prayer. Uh, as a Hellenistic believer, he didn't have the same walls that existed between Jews and Samaritans because uh, he's not a, a, a native to Israel. Uh, in fact, he was probably more accepted by the Samaritans because he was an exile from, Jew, from Israel. That gives him something in common with them. Uh, and so uh, that's what we're doing as evangelists. We're always looking for points of contact with people who don't know the Lord Uh, What do we have in common with these people? Uh, Where do our worldviews overlap? These are points where we can begin conversations and then try to steer that conversation uh, towards the gospel. Well, like the apostles, when they were preaching the gospel, Philip's preaching was accompanied by miracles that authenticated his preaching too. And so he's healing them and he's casting out these demons and unclean spirits. And there was great joy in Samaria because people were being healed of all their sicknesses. Uh, And so Stephen's death in Jerusalem led to healing and it led to salvation In Samaria. And so we see that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Stephen's blood led to salvation outside of Samaria. Uh, But this is a tale of two wonder workers. Uh, Philip was doing miracles by the power of God, but there was another man named Simon uh, who was doing dazzling things in Samaria uh, with his magic arts, uh, but not by the power of God. So let's read about him in verses 9 through 13. Now there was a man named Simon, who was formerly practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, And the name of Jesus Christ. They were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Well, Simon had become something of a rock star in Samaria, right? Because he's doing like these dazzling tricks and and, and wonders uh, that the people are seeing, and he astonished the people and he claimed to be someone great, and all from the smallest to the greatest were going out to him, uh, and, and they had been calling him the great power of God. So his magic arts were perceived by these Samaritans as the great power of God. And uh, Simon had already been there for a long time, bewitching uh, these Samaritans with his sorcery, and so uh, Philip had a tall task ahead of him uh, as a stranger in a strange land to come in uh, and expose Simon's sorcery and to and to show the true power of God, the miracles of God. And you have to think that Philip's miracles had to have been even greater than Simon's or at least more beneficial to the people because they were following Philip and believing Philip and being baptized uh, by Philip. And so the miracles that he's doing gave him uh, the authority and the authenticity uh, to preach the good news about the kingdom of God, which, of course, refers to Jesus' coming when he's going to rule on the earth. And the name of Jesus Christ that they believed in refers to Jesus' position as Messiah, and so his messianic title. And so what you have here is uh, the, the the Samaritans believing in Philip and leaving um Uh, leaving Simon. And then they all believed Philip, and then they were were baptized uh, as a result, as evidence of their belief. And they believed first, and then they were baptized. And so what I want us to understand here is that uh, baptism is not a condition of faith. Uh, It's the evidence or an evidence of your faith. I want to be sure we understand that. Uh, Even Simon was baptized, and then he continued to follow Philip. Well, I want to take a minute to to compare uh, Simon and Philip, kind of lay them side by side because that's just what Luke has done here. Uh, Luke has has juxtaposed Philip and Simon and what he's saying is that uh, both performed miracles and wonders, but Philip's miracles were performed by divine power while Simon's miracles were performed by demonic power. Simon pointed to himself and called himself someone great Meanwhile, Philip pointed to another, to Jesus Christ. And Simon merely entertained people, but as a result of Philip's work, he was converting people and saving people and having them baptized. And, and they had faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, so we, we look at this character, Simon, and, and we ask the question, well, was Simon actually saved? Uh, sometimes the word believe can mean mental assent, like an acceptance of facts. Uh, for example, James chapter 2, verse 19 says, uh, even the demons believe that God is one. Uh, but no one would argue that demons are believers, right? So you can have mental assent to something and yet still not believe. Luke also never said that Simon received the Holy Spirit. And later in the passage, Peter condemned Simon in very strong language, Uh, because he wanted the power to impart the gift of the Holy Spirit, but didn't seem to want the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, for himself. But on the other hand, it's very hard to know from this passage whether he was truly saved or not. Uh, If he was a believer, he was a brand new believer. And and I think we shouldn't impose more knowledge on a brand new believer than a brand new believer uh, would typically have. And so, Uh, Maybe he did repent of his sins at one point in time, and maybe he ultimately was saved. Uh, The point is, it's very hard to tell by looking at someone whether they are saved or not. Only God knows that, and God knows who are his and and who are not his. And so uh, John Newton, the former slave trader uh, who wrote the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace, uh, said, uh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be surprised by three things. Uh, First, who is there? A second, who is not there? And third, most surprisingly, that I'm there. Uh, So, you know, we we don't know as we look at other people whether they're saved or not. And the most staggering thing uh, is that we ourselves will find ourselves in heaven someday if we believe. And so uh, John Newton was not beyond God's reach. Don't assume that anyone is beyond God's reach. Well, now we come to the most difficult part of this episode. Uh, These three verses, four verses, have troubled me for some time, Uh, and so we're going to dig in a little theologically here, and so uh, I ask you to stay with me, and uh, I hope that that we have some clarity by the end of this uh, three-verse reading here. So let's read verses 14 through 17, the meeting of Jews and Samaritans. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, Those are some difficult verses. Uh, Every time I have read this passage, I've always felt sorry for Philip. He's like uh, on the JV team, right? And, and he's not good enough, I guess, to impart the Holy Spirit. And when they, when they want to do the heavy work of imparting the Holy Spirit, uh, they have to call in uh, the pillars from Jerusalem, the heavyweights uh, who are able then to impart the, the Holy Spirit. And, and so uh, why was that necessary? Why did Peter and John have to come to impart the Holy Spirit? Uh, that's one difficult issue. Uh, but the more difficult issue is that what we seem to have here is salvation in two stages, right? There is belief, and then there is the imparting of the Holy Spirit, uh, which happens at a later time. It seems that the, the believers did believe in verse 12, and yet it doesn't seem that they received the Holy Spirit until a later date. So I want us to ask two questions here, and the two questions are, uh, was this actually a two stage initiation into the Christian faith? And if so, is this kind of two stage initiation into the faith normal or abnormal? So, the first question is this a two stage process? Some theologians actually don't see a two stage process here. Uh, they argue that uh, th- there are two options here. So, let's just do a one step option number one. They believed Philip, that's verse 12. Uh, but had not believed in Jesus Christ and therefore were not truly saved until the apostles came and laid hands on them. And then they believed and received the Holy Spirit. Well, some people argue that, but but that's a difficult thing because what they're saying is they're trying to protect one stage uh, initiation into faith. And I get that. What what they're saying here is that the first stage was not true belief. Uh, They only believed in Philip. They didn't believe in Jesus uh, until later. Now, the problem here is that Luke doesn't say that there was any deficiency in their faith in verse 12. He says that they believed the good news, which is the gospel, and the name of Jesus Christ. And so it seems like they are true believers. So I don't like that particular option. Here's another option. Uh, the uh, others think that the Samaritans were saved and received the Holy Spirit when they believed, but then showed outward manifestations of having received the Holy Spirit when the apostles laid hands on them. And so in this case, again, it's a one-step initiation into the faith. They received faith and the Holy Spirit uh, in verse 12, but then they showed outward manifestations of having received the Spirit later on. Now, the problem with that is that Luke specifically says that the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on any of them until the apostles came. Uh, So, I understand what's going on here. I know what these theologians are trying to do, right? They're trying to protect what has always been Orthodox Christianity. You believe and you receive the Holy Spirit and it happens at the same time. And that's what Orthodox Christianity teaches. Uh, But I think that it's absolutely stretching the limits of language here uh, to to insist on this kind of two-step, I'm sorry, one-step initiation, because I think it's pretty clear here that in Acts chapter eight, that this is a two-step initiation into the faith. So the second question is, if it is a two-step initiation into the faith, is this normal or is this abnormal? Catholics have used this uh, passage to develop their theology of baptism followed by confirmation. Uh, Catholics have said the first stage of initiation into the church is baptism. And then that's followed at a later point in time Uh, by confirmation, at which point in time that the bishop lays hands on the confirmie, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. And there have been Catholic theologians from the 3rd century down to the 20th century who have said that this is normal, this is the way that it happens. On the other hand, uh, some Protestant denominations, Pentecostals and Charismatics, for example, use these verses for their theology of a two-step initiation into the faith. But it's different than the Catholic two-step initiation. And here, uh, what happens is that uh, some Pentecostals say that the first stage of initiation is conversion, which is the turn from sin and unbelief to repentance and faith, followed by a second stage, at which point in time, uh, a Pentecostal leader lays hands on them, imparts the Holy Spirit, and then sometimes that's accompanied by the gift of speaking uh, in tongues. And so, We have two different options then for how they interpret the two-step initiation, but I think the problem is uh, that that these two groups are are building a theology of salvation on something that may not necessarily have been normative uh, at the time. And so uh, the mistake is to to take uh, and build all your theology on something that happened once and is not normative uh, in what we see in the New Testament. So, uh, in fact, in the New Testament, the plain and consistent teaching is that we repent, believe, receive forgiveness for our sins, and receive the Holy Spirit. That happens at the same time. And we see uh, that all believers, all believers have the Holy Spirit uh, in all of these passages: Acts 2:38 and 39, Romans 8:9, Romans 8:14 to 16, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 6 verse 19. Galatians 3.2 and four six, uh, just to name a few. Uh, believers have the Holy Spirit, except in this one isolated incidence. Uh, and so we have to ask the question, if this is a two-step process, why did God choose to use it only here in the New Testament? Uh, why was it necessary to send Peter and John to impart the Holy Spirit to these Samaritans? Why in this specific instance did God withhold the Holy Spirit until a later time. I think the best explanation for this is that God is trying to heal the division between the Jews and the Samaritans. And this is the first time that the gospel had been preached outside of Jerusalem and inside the dreaded Samaria. Samaritans are half Jews and they're half Gentiles. And so as such, they're going to be a stepping stone to the the larger Gentile world. Uh, The Samaritans were hated, but now they're being evangelized and they're receiving the gospel. And so to resolve the 1,000-year hostility that existed between Jews uh, and these Samaritans, God deliberately withheld the Holy Spirit until such time as he could send the pillars of the Jewish church, uh, Peter and John, out to affirm uh, Philip's work and to affirm the Samaritans' belief. And then he sent the Holy Spirit on them. And now all would know that there is one church under God. Jews and Samaritans and later Gentiles are all under one church under God. And if God had not done it this way, I think there's the very real possibility that you would have the Samaritan church existing in Samaria and the Jerusalem church existing in uh, uh, Jerusalem kind of on railroad tracks, right? On a parallel course, existing together simultaneously, but never coming into contact with each other, never resolving their differences, never having forgiveness, never having fellowship. And that is not God's uh, method or means of how he wants his church to be. And so God did it in Samaria this way for this reason, but it's not the regular practice of God to do it that way. In fact, In just a couple chapters in Acts chapter 10, we're going to see Cornelius and his whole household. They believe and they receive the Holy Spirit at the same time. I think what we need to understand here, and I hope you you followed most of that, uh, what I'm trying to say is that the first 10 chapters of Acts are kind of a transitional period as the gospel begins in Jerusalem and then reaches out to the outer world. And And God was doing things in ways that we are not necessarily used to as 21st century believers uh, to accomplish a specific purpose and a specific goal. Uh, And once you see it that way, uh, the problems that you have with the order of things in Acts Acts chapter 10 uh, can be resolved. And and to me, it just goes to show you that you cannot put God in a box. You cannot say, God never does this. God always does that. God can't do this. God won't do that. Uh, God is absolutely sovereign. He can do what he wants, when he wants, where he wants to to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And so he did things a little bit out of the ordinary in Acts chapter 8, but he did it for a specific reason. Now, this passage has bothered me Uh, for a long time. I have not been able to reconcile this two-step process in my mind. And so studying it this week has helped me a lot. Uh, I should mention that I am greatly indebted to John Stott, who I did a lot of reading in this week, who really helped me with this passage. And so I hope that 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 helps uh, understand that this was a two-step process, but it's not the normal way that things are done. All right, now back to Simon. We'll read about verses 18 to 24, and we'll read about his misunderstanding. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was... "'bestowed through the laying on of hands of the apostles, "'he offered them money, saying, "'Give this authority to me as well, "'so that everyone on whom I lay my hands "'may receive the Holy Spirit.' "'But Peter said to him, "'May your silver perish with you, "'because you thought you could obtain "'the gift of God with money. "'You have no part or portion in this matter, "'for your heart is not right before God.' Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you said may come on me. Well, When Simon saw the power of Peter and John to impart the Holy Spirit, uh, he was just overcome with uh, envy and jealousy and and overwhelmed by this power that was being imparted. And he had been impressed by Philip's power and followed Philip. But now this power that that Peter and John had, he had to have this power uh, for himself. And so he tries to buy it with money. Uh, The text doesn't say, that he wanted the Holy Spirit for himself, that he himself would be indwelt. He said that he wanted to have the gift to impart to others. And and so Peter gives him the the strongest rebuke possible. J.B. Phillips, uh, the Bible translator, has paraphrased uh, Peter's answer as, uh, to hell with you and your money. So a very, very strong rebuke indeed. And so we asked the question, could Simon possibly be saved in light of this rebuke that he received uh, from Peter? Simon showed no sign of remorse. He showed no sign of wanting the Holy Spirit for himself, and he didn't even want to pray for himself, which, of course, we know we must do. We must pray to, our, for, to, to Jesus ourselves for our salvation, and, and Simon was not willing to do that And so the evidence is really not that strong that Simon was saved. And my my hope is that although Luke didn't include it, Simon at some point along the line uh, had a change of heart and that he was uh, ultimately saved. Uh, You know, new believers, they, they, they don't have a lot of knowledge. They're brand new believers. And so they constantly need encouragement and teaching and patience and mentoring. And that's our obligation as more mature believers to do that with new believers. Uh, Michelangelo uh, took four years to, to take a block of marble and make his famous statue, David, out of that. And it takes uh, a long time for the Holy Spirit to change the whole person. In fact, it takes an entire lifetime. Uh, so be patient with new believers when you come across them. All right, let's think about some applications. The first application is this. Uh, our God is a God of reconciliation. Luke finished this passage with a summary statement uh, about Peter and John on the way back to Jerusalem. And verse 25 says, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Isn't it just incredible the power that God has to tear down walls, to tear down hostility that has existed for a thousand years? The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. You couldn't get any more Jewish than Peter and John, right? And yet here these two pillars of the Jewish community are in Samaria preaching to Samaritans and Samaritans are being saved. You'll remember back in John chapter nine, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him into Samaria on his way back to Jerusalem. Uh, And yet the Samaritans wouldn't receive him because he was going to Jerusalem. So uh, John and James said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and to consume them? And Jesus said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of for the son of man did not come to destroy lives, uh, but to save them. And so God, by his mercy and grace, uh, by the ministry of Jesus and by uh, Stephen's death and followed by Philip's preaching in Samaria, broke down a thousand years of hostility uh, that existed between these two groups and a thousand years of prejudice and hatred that existed between them. So let me ask you this. Can he not break down any walls that exist between you and somebody else uh, in your life? Is, is God too small that he can't do that? Uh, make a phone call this week. Choose reconciliation and watch God tear down the walls that exist between you and that person in your life. Second, you can't buy the Holy Spirit with money or works. Paul McCartney's saying, I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me. That's right. They can't buy the Holy Spirit either, can it? And neither can all the works that you do. It cannot buy the Holy Spirit. There is one way and one way only to be saved. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. That's it. That's the gospel. Uh, No amount of works can get you there. Uh, Only the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross can get you there. So don't rely on yourself, your own works. Don't rely on your stuff. Don't rely on your baptism. Don't rely on your parents' faith. Don't be like Peter uh, Simon who relied on Peter and John to try and get them to pray him into heaven. Uh, you, you personally have to trust in the Lord Jesus and his saving work in order to be saved. Uh, you young people will not get to heaven by trusting in your parents and what they have taught you. You have to make a personal decision for yourselves, and I pray uh, that you have done that. Third, the power of God is greater than the power of demons or magic, I believe in demons because the Bible says they exist, and I believe that they are probably fallen angels who fell with Satan and now who serve Satan to do his bidding. They can mesmerize us with their power, uh, but they ultimately will lead us to destruction. They can bind us in physical and mental and spiritual ailments, Uh, but God has authority over the demonic, and he has the power uh, he did it in Samaria to free all these people from the demonic power and influence that uh, the unclean spirits had over them. And these Samaritans thought they had something special in Simon, right? They were just wowing Simon and and, and calling him the great power of God. But Simon was a, a, a magician. Uh, he was a sideshow. He was able to do magic tricks. He was not able to give them anything of ultimate value. When Philip came and when Peter and John came, He gave them what has ultimate value. He gave them the Holy Spirit. The power of Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the gift of eternal life are more valuable than all the world's treasure. And finally, God can use a godly person in many ways. I'm thinking about Philip. He started as a minister to the Hellenistic widows, that's humble service. Then he became an evangelist. That requires knowledge of the scriptures and a willingness to to go out and preach uh, to strangers and to go wherever it is that God puts you uh, to preach the word. And in Acts chapter 21, we'll encounter Philip again as he's hosting uh, uh, Paul and his traveling companions on the way back from their third missionary journey. And that requires generosity and hospitality and and Philip had all of these characteristics and we as Christians should have these characteristics and more and we can use them if we are attuned to the Holy Spirit looking for opportunities to serve in the power of the Holy Spirit so where do you see a need in our church where do you see a need in your own family where do you see a need at your job site Uh, how can you fill that need God can use a godly person who is willing to be used by God. And so I pray that we'll take that lesson out here, out of here today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we are grateful for this amazing passage. It takes people like Philip who are willing to go into strange places and preach the gospel uh, so that people will believe, Lord. And if it wasn't for people like Philip, none of us in this room would be believers. We required a transmission from the apostles down through people like Philip and, and people who believed through Philip's ministry so that ultimately 2,000 years later, we could believe, Lord. And and if we're still here in 1,000 years and there are still believers, uh, Lord, believing, it's because of what we will do while we've been here, Lord, preaching the word, making disciples, and having those disciples make disciples. So I pray that you would give us these qualities that Philip had uh, to use them in earnest, Lord, the ability to know the scriptures, the desire to want to see uh, lost people get saved. Uh, and Lord, the, uh, just the, the wisdom and the knowledge to know how to do that, Lord. We ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us to do these things like he did for Philip. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.